if the West decides that they want to change the rules of the game for who they grant market access to and go beyond the rules we have at the WTO, then we could end up with a new a rule book for how trade and investment flows are governed. The open, rules-based trading system is under pressure. As countries increasingly seek to leverage economic interdependence for geopolitical gain, what does it mean for the future of globalization? Will Russia's war in Ukraine mark a watershed moment? And with multilateral trade governance at its weakest in decades, how can the system adapt to these challenges and to the impact of climate change? These are some of the issues explored by the AIG Global Trade Series 2022, a series of podcasts brought to you by AIG in partnership with some of the world's leading centers of expertise on global trade. The series moderator is Rem Kortovec of the Klingendal Institute. Hello and welcome to the AIG Global Trade Series 2022, a series of podcast conversations with leading thinkers on the future of international trade. My name is Rem Kortovec. I'm a senior research fellow at the Klingendal Institute in the Netherlands. And today we will be discussing sanctions, energy, resources, and the future of globalization. In response to Russia's war in Ukraine, the EU and the United States have passed an unprecedented set of sanctions, from financial asset freezes, sanctions on the Russian central bank and multiple Russian financial institutions, sanctions on the import of Russian steel products, coal, and now possibly oil, to export bans on Western advanced technology. There is even talk of removing Russia's trade privileges at the WTO. Besides, many Western companies have decided to leave the country. If anything, the EU and the US seem intent on decoupling themselves from the Russian economy, but perhaps also to decouple Russia from the global economy. At the same time, Russia is the 11th economy of the world and a major exporter of natural resources, including, of course, oil and gas, but also minerals and metals. And the country has imposed counter sanctions and taken steps to impact intellectual property of Western companies based in Russia. No one knows how long this situation will endure, but the purpose of Western sanctions seems to be to degrade Russia's economic potential beyond simply restricting exports of civil military goods and damaging Russia's military industry. And this raises the question whether the Ukraine war marks a turning point in global trade relations. The G7 economies are trying to deglobalize Russia, a G20 economy. What does this mean? Is economic interdependence becoming more and more weaponized? And if so, what does that mean for the future of globalization? To take a closer look at this, I'm joined by three fantastic thinkers in the field. I'm joined by Simon Evanet. Simon is Professor of International Trade and Economic Development at St. Gallen University and Director of the Global Trade Alert Initiative. Secondly, I'm joined by Marianne Schneider-Petzinger. Marianne is a senior research fellow in the U.S. and the Americas program at Chatham House in London. She's responsible for analysis at the nexus of political and economic issues. And finally, I'm joined by Antonio Villafranca. Antonio is the director of studies at the Italian Institute for International Political Studies, also known as ISPI. He's co-head of the Europe Global Governance Center. 
He is also a lecturer of international relations at the Bocconi University in Milan. So with those introductions out of the way, let's get started. How is the Ukraine war shaping globalization? Is the Ukraine war a watershed moment in global economic affairs? Have we reached an inflection point in globalization? And if so, in what way? Globalization has been declared dead many, many times before. So perhaps for you, Simon, to get us started, how should we think about this? I would differentiate between whether it's a watershed moment for globalization or for global economic governance. For globalization, clearly not. We still see goods trade, FDI is happening, data is crossing borders, people are crossing borders. For global economic governance, it could become a watershed moment. Western countries and their allies decide, as Liz Truss said yesterday in London, that economic access to their markets must is a function of good behavior. And if the West decides that they want to change the rules of the game for who they grant market access to and go beyond the rules we have at the WTO, then we could end up with a new a rule book for how trade and investment flows are governed. But notice the if in my statement. Right. And, and Marianne, I mean, you, you observe both the US, European and British discussions. Do you have the feeling that there is a, a, an inflection point that we've approached with the Ukraine war in terms of talking about global economic relations or global economic governance? I think in and by itself, Russia's invasion of Ukraine is not an inflection point, but it comes as part of a storm of crises, if you will, following U.S.-China strategic competition and trade tensions, following the COVID-19 pandemic. So I think there is something to be said about that we are facing a new era of globalization, but that's not to say it's the end of globalization. And just to build on Simon's comments again, Russia is not a significant enough player in the world economy to fundamentally change the future of globalization. Its contribution to global GDP is under 2%. And so I think that unless the sanctions escalate to China, the economic fallout in the long term is going to be limited. And I think we're also perhaps overemphasizing the Western response to Russia. While the invasion has been met with really significant opposition by the West, the response in other parts of the world has been quite muted. And so a very interesting study by the St. Louis Fed, for example, looked at the voting behavior of countries on the issue of Russia's invasion at the UN General Assembly on the 2nd of March. And it found that those countries that supported Russia or that abstained from condemning Russia actually have tighter trade linkages with the rest of the world. And so those countries actually face a much higher obstacle and higher cost to restructuring their trade. And I think that shows that effectively there is an inbuilt disincentive to deglobalize going forward. At the same time, though, there are ways in which there is transformation happening. And I think a shift happening in global trade on three fronts. I think we're seeing that in supply chain reconfiguration. We're seeing it with an increased focus on national security and geopolitics. And finally, I think there is also a moment where we're moving from globalization to regionalization or perhaps even the emergence of blocks. Thanks for that. And Antonio, from a Italian or a, a European point of view, where 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 do you see uh, the Europeans coming out in this in this debate? Are we at a moment where our thinking about globalization should be completely adjusted or tweaked because of the response to the Ukraine war? My feeling is that in any case, the Ukraine war is going to be a game changer. That's no doubt. 
But I wouldn't, I wouldn't go so far, you know, to say that, you know, we are now approaching at the end of globalization or to a sort of Cold War scenarios as the one we had last century. Because, you know, the situation in that case was completely different. Uh, because the value chains, of course, were not as so strict as they, they are today, because most of all, there was a, a real ideological confrontation between the West and the East in the past. This is not something that is happening today. So we are going to see, of course, international trade and globalization, but in a different way. Regionalization, as Mar- Marianne put it, could be you know, a, a way to respond, which which is not, you know, necessarily different from, you know, a situation in which we still have international trade with China, because China is going to be, of course, a, a, a key actor in international trade. What we know so far that the Ukraine war is going to, is, is having an impact on trade, but it's a relatively limited impact. According to the last uh, estimates, uh, this year, the global uh, trade growth was supposed to be 4.7%. Now it's 3%. So it's going to have a negative impact. Still, there is a rise. So this is my feeling. I mean, uh, it's not the end of globalization. Probably it's the end of globalization as we used to know it. But that then raises this question, to what extent we in, in sort of Europe or the West are are overly focused on the impact of the of the Ukraine war. So how... How, how Western or European or American is our fixation on, um, on looking at the trade effects of the Ukraine war? If it is for me, I mean, I think maybe you, we are a little obsessed, but I would not put it this way. I mean, uh, we are concerned by what is happening uh, just because it's just it's out of, uh, beyond our borders, just around our corner. So, of course, we are much more focused and concerned. And it's going to, 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 to have an impact. It's going to have a sociopolitical impact. Think of the way, you know, the rhetoric about the war is, you know, now in the political discourses of many parties including Italy, you know that we are going to have a national election next year. So necessarily, inevitably, this will be used by political parties in their electoral campaign, whether they support Russia or they support Ukraine. Yeah, and we'll talk a little bit about those domestic political impacts a little bit later on, uh, Antonio, but thanks for already putting that on the table. Uh, Simon? It may be that the conflict is in Europe and you, the immediate uh, sort of military fallout is here, but the the impact globally could be quite significant. We have already seen rising energy prices. We're seeing increases in uh, food prices. Uh, Indonesia, after all, just banned the export of palm oil because it was concerned about rising food prices at home. And as we uh, mentioned earlier, if the global rules of the game for trade start evolving in response to this, then the spillovers outside of Europe could become quite significant. So I think the rest of the world does have a stake in how this plays out. But I do understand a certain amount of eye-rolling when Europeans suddenly wake up at the up about the shocks of war when there are parts of the world which have unfortunately suffered wars, or maybe we haven't paid as much attention to them as they, as we could have done. And when you mentioned that the um, the rule book of economic affairs might might change or evolve as a consequence of of the Ukraine war, what are you thinking about? Is this more a uh, that national security starts to take more of a of a precedence over economic considerations, or that? protectionism uh, will will become a growing feature of the international trade space what are what are you thinking about 
So I, th I think there would be a stronger national security uh, motive, but I, the way I think this would play out would be whether a group of countries determine, especially the sort of liberal market economies and democracies, decide that they want to grant the most favorable access to their markets to economies like and democracies like themselves. And they can do that in two ways. Option one is to integrate much more amongst themselves and leave the WTO rule because the base treatment that everyone gets. And if you're inside the club, you get better treatment. The difficulty with option one is that it would involve further liberalization in North America and in Western Europe. And I see very little appetite for that. Option two is to turn around and say, uh, we will give the best uh, treatment to liberal democracies and market economies, but the rest of the world will have to pay um, much higher tariffs. Now that could be done inelegantly by revoking the most favored nation status of other countries, or it could be done through the back door with things like carbon border tax adjustments. And this is a world where you have, you move to one of a world of blocks where uh, there are significant tariff barriers and trade barriers, and that would be a much more trade-impeded world. And so I think there are two ways this could play out if the liberal market economies and democracies decide, and this is the fundamental choice, that they will only grant the best access to their markets to countries like themselves. From, from my perspective, we already see initial indications pointing in that direction, right? This whole discussion about friendshoring or only doing trade deals with countries which which think similarly or have a similar value set as uh, as your own how how has the ukraine war kind of acted as a catalyst for that if i can just say here i, I would say it has strengthened the uh, position of the american advocates of this position mm. and there have been long-standing american advocates of position of this position vis-a-vis -vis china it has emboldened, I think, advocates of this position in London. And I would not be surprised if we see more advocates of this in Brussels. But I don't think we've reached the tipping point yet where the West, or at least the liberal market economies, make this decision. This is, I think, what we're edging towards. And I think there does need to be a first order strategic decision about this. And uh, I would hope that people think very carefully about this, because this could well be the watershed moment that you were talking about. I'm going to take a quick break, and when we return, continue talking about sanctions, energy, resources, and the future of globalization with Simon Evanett, Marianne Schneider-Petzinger, and Antonio Villafranca. As the global economy emerges from the pandemic and intensifying regulatory competition is further straining the open trading system, conversations about international trade and its contribution to global prosperity have never been more important. If you'd like to listen to more podcasts on global trade, search AIG Global Trade Series 2022. This series is brought to you by AIG and its partners, the Aspen Institute Germany, Chatham House, the Klingendahl Institute, the Institute of International Economic Law at Georgetown University Law Center, the International Chamber of Commerce UK and France, the Italian Institute for International Political Studies, the Jacques Delors Institute France, the Research Institute of Economy, Trade and Industry, and the St. Gallen Endowment for Prosperity Through Trade. We're back from our break. We'll continue talking about sanctions, energy, resources, and the future of globalization with Simon, Marianne, and Antonio. Marianne, 
I know that you also work on on U.S. European or sort of transatlantic trade issues and this whole issue of friendshoring or working together with like-minded countries is is very prominent in the transatlantic context. How do you um, take Simon's points? It certainly, you know, has been there even before Russia's invasion of Ukraine, very much in the context of the COVID nineteen pandemic. But I think there is again perhaps a real risk that we're seeing this formation of two or more prominent economic blocks. Again, the one centered around the advanced liberal democracies with the G7 at the core, and then the other being the China-dominated bloc that includes Russia. But I think it's not quite as straightforward as that to divide the world into economic blocs, because there are real questions on how solid those blocs would be. You know, we're still seeing the EU's trade with China continuing and rising, actually. And there's a lot of countries, particularly in Asia-Pacific, that would want to choose. They don't want to belong to either bloc, or that they, they want to belong to multiple blocs. So I think there is a real question of, you know, how solid those blocks would be, how you still facilitate interactions and trade between blocks. And I think to Simon's point about countries within a block have stronger incentives to integrate markets through free trade agreements. That is, I think, a very legitimate question to what extent, you know, the trade between blocks would be replaced by trade within blocks. I think there is a very strong argument to be made for that. Politically, I don't see any appetite, particularly in the United States, to actually move forward with that. So I think it's more of a, you know, in theory, but not necessarily in practice, realistically playing out. On the European point of view, because you know that the European Union is committed to strategic autonomy. The, we are in love in the European Union uh, with new words. Now we, we are in love with the strategic compass, with the strategic autonomy, whatever it means. But basically, my understanding is that uh, you know, there are two effects coming out of this. One is, of course, reshoring to some extent, and the other one is diversification of trade routes and partnerships. This is something that the European Union will consistently and continuously uh, consider in the future. And actually, I don't see in the mid to the long run, you know, a big impact on relations with Russia. Take, for instance, one indication coming from the European Commission. They say that out of 137 strategic assets, uh, from raw materials to high-tech products, 52% of them are imported from China, while only 3% come from Russia. So the real issue is not, of course, Russia, even because sooner or later we will get rid of China oil and gas imports. We know that, that's for sure, that's the first result of today's crisis, but we cannot get rid, of course, of these imports very easily on these strategic assets from China. That is mm. the big issue. Let's dwell a little bit on how China then observes the, the current economic contest between the West and Russia. If it's true that the West is trying to um, decouple Russia from the global economy. What lessons does China draw from that? I mean, of, of course, it's going to try to take steps to shield itself from any fallout directly from the Ukraine war. But are there also longer term lessons that you think the Chinese are going to be drawing from this, which impact the way in which global trade develops? Yeah, so I, I see two um, strategic lessons. If I was sitting in Beijing, I would draw two strategic lessons. The first is to confirm that uh, the wisdom of their dual circulation strategy, which was premised in part on the belief that the world had become a uh, less reliable and unsafe place and that other countries would start weaponizing globalization. Uh, and so 
I think the one group of Chinese analysts would turn around and say, look, you know, we were right to go down that path and we should continue to go down that path. I'm not endorsing that, but I suspect if I, that's how some might see it. The second uh, group of um, officials and analysts in Beijing might be asking the question, if they did try and retake Taiwan, how would the West react and whether or not what we're seeing now is a dress rehearsal for how the West would react under those circumstances. And that might alter their calculations about the timing, the feasibility, and the wisdom of that particular move. Yeah, I do think that there is essentially multiple dimensions that China is trying to balance. On the one hand, it's very much the implications of global economy cooling, particularly also shielding um, the Chinese economy from the direct effects of any potential U.S. sanctions or European sanctions if they were to take direct steps to support Russia. And the other element is still very much around the principle of territorial integrity, where there's also important lessons, I think, that, that China is taking. So it's, it's very difficult to actually discern what China's position is and is going to be. And I think there's also an important lesson there to be learned from the U.S. and from the European side. Again, we've talked a lot about this concept of French shoring, of open strategic autonomy, which is quite similar in that regard. But I think ultimately it does come down that greater resilience is you know, about diversifying markets, but it's also very much about open and predictable trade rules. And I think in this environment where there's at least talk about reshoring and bringing production back home, that creates new vulnerabilities linked to natural disasters in you know, local areas or outbreaks of diseases. And I think the pendulum shouldn't swing too far from this focus of you know, just-in-time production to just-in-case, because there are also, again, concerns and inbuilt risks that come with concentrating sources of production at home. Yeah, so there are lessons that China is learning. There are also lessons that the West is learning. If I may add one thing on, on this, Rami, yeah. because you know, just a few days ago, she made, delivered a, a very important speech uh, in which, basically, he was defending the Russian position. And he didn't say it, you know, in a clear, clear way, but basically was criticizing uh, the uh, Western sanctions to, to, to China, uh, to, to Russia. And uh, it, it is very telling also the reaction that we had in the United States with the U.S. State Department spokesperson at Price, for instance, uh, saying that she was simply parroting Putin. Uh, it is very telling because, you know, the, the posture that the United States has uh, vis-a-vis China is different from the European stance against China. And this could be a dividing line between, you know, the U.S. and, and Europe. Uh, because there is one thing which brings together, you know, the Democrats and the Republicans in the U.S. And that thing is China. This strong sentiment against China. It is not necessarily like this in, in Europe, and this could be, you know, a dividing issue between the two sides of the Atlantic. It's it's interesting how much time we've spent so far talking about China in the context of the Ukraine war, which says a lot about how, you know, again, China's importance in terms of global economic ties vis-a-vis Russia's. If I think about lessons that the Chinese draw or might draw. It also depends on how effective Western economic actions against Russia are. I'd like to ask a question whether we could focus a little bit on what we can say about the effectiveness of the sanctions package and whether it's achieving this 
aim to, however you want to call it, degrade. I've heard European officials describe it as the intent is to degrade Russia's economic potential or to decouple Russia from from the global economy or to decouple Western economies from Russia, however you want it. Are these sanctions achieving that goal? And if not, how could they be made more more effective? I know Simon that you've you've just recently authored a really interesting or co-authored a really interesting paper drawing the comparison between the removal of Russia's trade privileges at the WTO and juxtaposing it to rising costs of of seaborne trade for Russia. So I'm I'm keen to also kind of get your views on how do you read the effectiveness of the Western sanctions package. I think you should evaluate the sanctions against uh, Russia in light of what we know about previous sanctions packages. And traditionally, sanctions packages, comprehensive packages, reduce the GDP of, of the country concerned by about 4%. And most of the damage is not done by the trade sanctions. It's done by financial sanctions and non-economic sanctions. So that's the, the track record. When you look at the current sanctions package, I think it, it's widely agreed that the financial sanctions are incredibly far-reaching and, and potentially extremely important in frustrating not only financial flows, but also trade as well. The trade sanctions are, I think, likely to be fairly uh, minor in terms of their effects. We estimate the rest of the G7 and the, and the EU copy the Canadian 35% across the board sanctions. Then this will degrade Russian GDP over the medium term by about 0.9%. So that's not a particularly large number. The other angle, and you you mentioned it, is that traditionally when countries are isolated for a long period of time, and that could well happen to Russia, the transport costs that they face abroad rise Mm. uh, significantly. And we saw this with the South African uh, sanctions in the apartheid regime. And uh, it's quite, it's easily possible to conceive of increases in Russian transportation costs to and from Russia that gets you to the 4% uh, GDP hit that I mentioned earlier. So I suspect if this goes on for five or 10 years, we will look back and say the financial sanctions were the first whack, the the shipping costs were the second hit, the trade sanctions were probably kept in place on coherence grounds alone, that you can't really have financial sanctions without trade sanctions, and that the package together did do damage to the Russian economy but it wasn't the trade sanctions which pushed the needle. Well, if I can just say something on this, because here at TSP we made a sort of, we saw the effectiveness of sanctions in history. And we realized that, uh, you know, sanctions were successful only once every three times. So, I mean, it means that they are not successful. They tend not to be. But in the specific case of Russia, I think they, they will be successful uh, with enough, if you want, but just because you know uh, the Russian economy is so fragile. Apart from sanctions, there is no economic diversification basically in in Russia. Everything depends on hydrocarbon exports. So is, there, there is really no future for that economy if economic diversification will not be there. And uh, that's why I think that if the European Union moves to sanctions on energy because that is the real sanction which can hurt. If we move there, and we will get there if the, the war continues, but not immediately. There is a calculation made by the Bundesbank in, in Germany, which the ban of oil and gas imports will cost, so only gas, 
is 180 billion euros to Germany, which is impressive. So it means that we cannot afford it at the moment. But if the war continues, of course, we will get there because in the meantime, we will diversify our gas and oil imports. And that will hurt China and Russia because they are not able to replace in you know, one or two years you know, the European importers with Asian importers. They cannot do it with the liquefied gas. They cannot do it by pipelines because you need years to build new pipelines. So what do we end up with then, Antonio? Because there appears to be a pretty strong public push to first start to sanction Russian oil and oil products. But given that the Russians seem to be preempting Europe's debate about gas and already cutting off some EU countries from Russian gas supplies, it it seems that it's only a matter of time before the EU also starts to really significantly pursue a policy to significantly reduce its its Russian gas intake. It's not an opinion. I mean, it's written, clearly written by the European Commission. This is the European strategy. We are going to lower, if not, you know, uh, having as zero the gas and oil imports from Russia. And this is going to be the trend. When I said, I mean, it's a game changer for the European Union. I, I mean this, basically. We are not going to import or to be in a situation in which we can bla- be blackmailed by Russia. Because what happened with Poland, with the ban of gas import, is absolutely a blackmail. This is also mm-hmm. what the Christine Lagarde said. We don't want to be in this condition anymore. But there is one aspect which is you know, extremely important. It's not only about quantity of gas we are importing, it's the price. We can also diversify our, our gas imports. Italy is doing this, be, buying, for instance, gas from Algeria, from other African countries. It is part of pipeline gas. Some of this is a liquefied gas. The point is the price of this imported gas is three or four times higher than the price of the gas we're importing from Russia. This is clearly not sustainable in the short to mid-term. And that raises this question how some of Europe's policies to, to punish Russia or to, to squeeze Russia for its, for its invasion of Ukraine might have spillover effects domestically. So what are the impacts on European economies, on European societies? Because I think this is mostly focused on Europe. I mean, the United States won't be, I think, won't be heavily exposed to the side effects of, of its own sanctions policies. But Europe may. And so this, this condition that we're moving towards of sustained higher energy prices in the middle of a purchasing power crisis in Europe and food price inflation that we're also seeing, how, how important is that you think going to be in the greater scheme of things, namely... What does this mean for Europe's appetite to continue with pretty strong sanctions against Russia? I mean, this is the real issue for me. Take, for instance, what happened just you know, a few days ago with the French elections. Everybody could expect you know, that you know, the number one issue discussed during the electoral campaign was Ukraine or was terrorism or was... A, no, the first number one issue for uh, Le Pen and for Macron was the purchasing power of French people. I mean, they, they, that was the real issue. And the, 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 the bizarre thing, if you want, is that the, the inflation in France uh, is lower than the average inflation in the Eurozone. So it's, it's much worse in Germany, for instance. It's going to be mm. probably even worse in Italy. 
And next year, uh, we are going to vote. And I'm totally sure that, you know, that inflation and the rise of price and purchasing power of families, of households, will be one, if not the key issue of the, of the new uh, campaign. So that's why we really need to have this war to be over soon, because otherwise people will get tired, understandably. Well, they won't just get tired. They'll think it's too expensive. Yes, they will get tired and, and because they think it's too expensive. And then they say, okay, we are sorry about Ukraine, but what else can we do? For instance, if you take the bill of the electricity in Italy, this is my personal experience, I can share it with you, is 30, 40% higher than three, four months ago. I can afford it, but what about a poor family maybe in the southern part of Italy? They cannot afford it even now, this increase. And this is going to get, to, to get worse and worse. And just to bring in Simon's statistics again, this piece of research that you did leading to the conclusion that sanctions have, can have an impact of about minus 4% of GDP, after how much time is that affected? The, the study where that comes from looked at uh, sanctions, 76 sanctions um, uh, episodes over about uh, 30 or 40 years. And the 4% was over two years was, was the impact. I think you need to then ask the question, you know, what is the strategic purpose of these sanctions, right? Are we, we clearly are not deterring Vladimir Putin. Are we punishing him? And is this sufficient punishment? Or should we focus on trying to if the goal is to try and ensure that Ukraine survives, should the focus be on using our resources there? I mean, you, you do have to wonder what we are actually trying to do with these sanctions and where how this all fits together in any type of coherent strategy. Can I also say about this, um, the, the question of the cost of living crisis? Clearly, we had a, a rising energy prices and consumer price inflation before the invasion of Ukraine. And we now have this extra factor on top. And if this pushes the European public towards saying, well, look, actually, you know, we can't afford these sanctions or we can't push, we can't push back against Vladimir Putin in this way. In many ways, that's exactly the assumption he made when he started this. That there is, the, I mean, and I think the lesson that would be drawn in, in Moscow and in Beijing is of limited European willingness to endure pain in order to stand up for its values. And that could have very negative long-term consequences for how the rest of the world treats the European Union and other European nations for that matter. Right. Well, that's a very, uh, very optimistic thought. Um, <laughs> thanks for that, Simon. No, I think I, I, I agree with you that this this is part of the the, the calculus in in Moscow and and in Beijing. The question is whether they're going to be right. And Marianne, just to bring you in on this. How concerned are you about the, the appetite of, of Western countries to continue sanctions for the long run? No, I'm absolutely concerned about that, you know, echoing everything that both Antonia and Simon have said. From the European and US perspective, that question of, you know, the inflationary pressures on top of, again, supply chain disruptions that we've seen following the COVID pandemic, question is how long is this lasting? How long is this sustainable? On the question of sanctions and to what extent the ultimate goal is to, you know, punish Russia or to change behavior. I think it's quite clear that the change of behavior we have not seen. And I think that does lead to the question of, do we need to see conditionality of sanctions? And the following question to that is then, you know, what should those conditions be? And it's not really up, in my opinion, to the US and the EU and other G7 members to determine the conditionality, but to Ukraine. And so to me, the question is, what 
kind of coordination is happening between the West and Ukraine to determine what the conditionality is? Is it perhaps, you know, that ultimately sanctions could be removed if Russia um, not only removes troops, but helps to actually rebuild Ukraine? So again, that, that is really up to Ukraine and not to the West to determine the conditionality of sanctions. Finally, the one point I would make is that we've talked quite a bit about fuel and energy, but there is also from a global perspective that real concern around what all of this means for food prices. Russia and Ukraine are really the world's breadbasket, um, accounting for 25% of wheat and 15% of, of barley supplies for the rest of the world. And particularly for African countries and many least developed countries, they really import more than one third of their wheat from the two countries that are at war, there are, let's say, cascading effects or systemic risks that come from that because we've seen energy prices spike that triggers further fertilizer price increases. And then um, again, fertilizer production being squeezed leads to further production um, shortages with regards to food. So again, there is these unintended knock-on effects that we don't quite know how they're going to play, but they play out across the world and not just in Europe and the US. I think that's right. And I think I just also in the interest of time, bring it back to sort of what the trade implications of this are, or the global economic governance implications, because um, we already see some of this uh, in Peru and in Indonesia, where already either turbulence has emerged because of lack of access to fertilizer or Indonesia taking steps to actually reduce exports because it doesn't, it, it feels that it needs it for its own economy. So, Simon, just to test this with you, in your mind, do you think some of the cascading effects, as Marianne calls it, of the Ukraine war are going to lead towards more economic nationalism? The short answer is yes. And essentially, the the export controls that we're seeing in food um, highlight a big gap we have in the WTO rulebook, which is that there are, uh, quite frankly, very few constraints on the use of these tools. And strangely enough, we have a trading system which is very strict on import curbs, but not on export curbs. And this is a hole that needs to be uh, needs to be fixed. That won't be fixed in the near term, but what we can do, or rather what governments can do in the near term, especially if the large exporters of these crops, is to commit to keep the supplies flowing. So the big exporters of wheat, the remaining exporters of wheat and vegetable oil and others could make public uh, statements, as the president of the World Bank has suggested, to offer confidence and assurance that supplies will continue. And I think this is the step that should be taken in the near term. Yes, and there is, I, I think, another aspect that we should uh, also consider. If we take the, uh, uh, the former protests, for instance, uh, in, uh, in the MENA region in the past, uh, the bulk of them were based on uh, food crisis uh, and spikes. The Arab Spring, you mean? Yeah. Not only the Arab Spring, but including the Arab Spring. So something similar may happen also uh, in the near future. And uh, we are very much preoccupied uh, in, uh, in the European Union and in Italy and Southern uh, Europe in particular about the effects on migration, migration pressures, because we know that there is a very strict link between, you know, these protests, uh, you know, degenerating uh, economic context in the MENA region and the flows of migrants. So we are very much, very much concerned about, you know, future developments also in terms of migration pressures uh, to the southern part of the EU. No, uh, point is well taken. I have one final question, but it might be a little bit tricky to answer. Still going to pose it. Is there a way back towards, back to the world of, of 
the 23rd of February, 2022. In other words, before the Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Or has the global trading system changed irrevocably? And is, is, is this kind of an, a new normal that we're now approaching where economic statecraft is much more ingrained as a foreign policy tool among Western European and American administrations and where economic nationalism is on the rise? In other words, even if the war ends, even if the sanctions are pulled back, is there a new normal that we're facing or shouldn't we uh, overestimate the, uh, the impact of this, uh, of this current crisis? I think we are approaching a new normal, not because of this crisis per se, but because we have had a sequence of crises which have undermined faith that trading relationships and supply chains operate in a smooth and seamless fashion. So if you go from everything from the trade war through to COVID to the Suez Canal blockage through the uh, mismatch in location of ships and containers, and now to this particular crisis, it is impossible to go before corporate boards and um, policymakers now and say, look, these supply chains will go back to normal. Don't worry about it because everyone's waiting for the next shoe to drop. So that does alter markedly how all of these discussions happen. In my view, there is still a very strong case for global engagement and for keeping markets open. But those of us who advocate for global engagement have got to be able to realize and address the different risk factors which are out there and to tailor our advice accordingly. And I think that's the new world we're in. So it's a new case for globalization or a refined case for globalization. The old reassurances won't work. Thanks. And that's, that's a perfect, perfect summary of, um, on which to close because unfortunately we are, we are out of time. So Simon Evanet, Marianne Schneider Petzinger, Antonio Villafranca, thank you very much for your time this afternoon and for sharing your insights with me. If you are interested in the other expert conversations that are part of the AIG Global Trade Series 2022, please go to our website at www.aig.co.uk slash gts. The AIG Global Trade Series 2022 is an international partnership between AIG, the Aspen Institute Germany, Chatham House, the Klingendahl Institute, the Institute of International Economic Law at Georgetown University Law Center, the International Chamber of Commerce, UK and France, the Italian Institute for International Political Studies, the Jacques Delors Institute, France, the Research Institute of Economy, Trade and Industry, and the St. Gallen Endowment for Prosperity Through Trade. To access articles and opinion pieces from partners in the Global Trade Series, and to listen to more podcasts on global trade, search AIG Global Trade Series 2022, or follow the AIG Global Trade Series wherever you get your podcasts.